Oh, I've been thinking a lot this week about what's going on in the world round about us. And, well, that can be a little depressing when you think about all that's going on in the world round about us, can it? I mean, you just think of just reading, reading headlines and uh, uh, news and, and, and so on. Uh, there are some themes that I've seen that continue to reoccur, violence and oppression. Who, who's going to stop ISIS? What's going on in the Middle East today? What's to be done about gang shootings right here in Portland and Vancouver? What's to be done about some of the, um, the oppression and trafficking that goes on in places far from us in the world and yet touches our own community right here? People using others for their own pleasure and profit and aims. The oppression of others. What about the, uh, one of the causes of that, one of the causes of all of the, the violence and, and oppression and, and people uh, abusing others is a complete breakdown of authority. One of the things we see in our, in our society today, you see a, a disrespect of authority. We, we don't have respect for our leaders. We don't have respect for authority. Who made you the boss of me could be written across our culture you see that lack of authority and respect for authority uh, uh, attack and cause to crumble, impact the very foundations of our society, even the foundational relationships of our society. We can't even, the things that were obvious before are not obvious anymore. Who says it has to be that way? Why can't I reinvent everything according to my terms? For instance, even the ordinance of marriage, why can't I just redefine that in any old way I want to? If we don't have any authority, authoritative foundations to go back to, if the whole world has indeed been shaken off its foundations, well then, why can't I? Our society seems to celebrate every kind of so-called spirituality unless, unless you name the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that just can't be tolerated, right? So, violent oppression... Disrespect for authority and rule of law from the high levels of our society on down to the lowest individual. The most basic foundations like marriage, the keeping of vows, and uh, spirituality or devotion to God. All of these things have been upset and scrambled or tossed aside. What does God think about these things in society, do you think? That, that handful, that collection that I could fairly easily talk to, I could, I could bring in a newspaper and just go from headline to headline and show those things. But what does God have to say? I don't, don't really care so much what the Columbian has to say. What does God have to say? That's why I want us to turn to the book of Amos this morning. Because God actually does have much to say about the problems that plague our society. In fact, problems that plague, it seems, every human society. We're going to take a little a historical survey here. We're going, to, we're going to see that God has addressed all of these things before. God has addressed them in societies other than ours. In fact, as he, as he takes a quick scan around the Middle East, you find that uh, one place after another, these same problems keep popping up. And yet there's an accountability implied in this survey. As the book of Amos opens, we find that not only Israel, but apparently all of the world is accountable to God. Or as Paul says much later in the book of Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. As we 
saw before in Psalm chapter 2. The nations rage against the Lord and against His anointed, but God has put His King on His holy hill of Zion. The God's King will reign. He has something to say and will ultimately, with finality, have something to say about all these things. So it's, it, it's good to pay attention ahead of time before that happens. That's what I want us to do this morning in the book of Amos. So turn to the book of Amos if you're, if you're uh, not there yet. The book of Amos, uh, chapter 1. And we're going to start, start right in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. God's going to go through a list, of, a, a uh, indictment of the nations, you could call it. He's going to go from one to another. He's gonna, you're going to hear this refrain, for three transgressions and for four. The word transgressions, it, well, it's a big word for a small word. It's a big word for sin. But it's not merely sin, in fact, that that's something that's wrong. It's a, a transgression is a line that was known, a line that was understood that you have willingly crossed. So for three transgressions, even for four, and that three, even four, that this number plus one more is a, is a common Hebrew style or idiom. Uh, in Proverbs, you'll see there are six things the Lord hates, even seven that he despises. So it's a, whether it's three and four, six and seven, it's a, it's a common. Three and four, you're thinking already, oh my goodness, three and four is seven, and seven seems to be a favorite number, so there must be some symbolism in that. And there are seven nations that are going to be listed here. Let me go through them. Amos chapter one, for the transgressions of Damascus Sorry, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, so I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and I, I will devour the strongholds of Benadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. Why? Because they threshed Gilead, one of the remoter regions of the nation of Israel, and Amos is speaking to Israel, by the way. And one of the remote areas was so violently invaded and oppressed by their neighbor Syria that he says they threshed them with threshing sledges of iron. As if they, they uh, pulled the threshing, uh, a threshing sled right across the back and the iron teeth were digging into the people. Some would even suggest that the Syrians actually did that. They built a large threshing sled and actually pulled it across some of their victims in order to terrorize others in the area, not to try to stand against them or rebel against them. So a very violent oppression of Syria. And now as Amos preaches this to Israel, that's what they do over there, and God is against them. What do you think Israel's response is to, to God's messenger Amos? You think they're glad to hear that? They're glad to hear that. It goes on, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people in, in slavery. To deliver them up to Edom, so I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. It will devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish so the land of Philistia, we have been to the, the north of Israel, now we're going down south, all the way across to the bottom corner of the map. And there too, there's this violent oppression and slavery, human trafficking, and God says enough is enough. 
And Israel says, it's about time God noticed. That's right. God, lay it out. God, take care of them. And the, and the, and the crowd begins to murmur in agreement as they listen to Amos, and it goes on in verse 9. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They violated Tyre, had a, had a, had a vow, covenant with Israel. That began from David and Solomon. And yet they have violated that, and they have trafficked in humanity and slavery. It said, I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and I will devour her strongholds. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, now we have gone from Israel's Mediterranean coastline down to the opposite corner, the desert corner, where Edom, Edom is the nation that's descended from Israel, Jacob's brother Esau. And they too have, have uh, been oppressive against Israel. For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother. Esau pursued Jacob. The descendants of Esau have, have pursued with the sword the descendants of Jacob. They've oppressed them. Violence against them. And cast off all pity. They should have been there to help and yet they actually bought them as slaves. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The Ammonites were to the east of Israel because they have, oh my goodness, ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Can you imagine the horror? That's the kind of thing that happens still in the Middle East today. Can you imagine the horror of the human slaughter, the violent oppression of, of one people by another? When will it end? When will God do something about it? That's what Israel is thinking as they hear Amos cry against this. They're saying, yeah, that's right. With all of this that's going on, God, you've got to do something. Yeah? And they're with him. They're in agreement. They're saying, Amos, you're right. Finally, somebody has, is speaking against these things and, and bringing God's wrath to bear. When is God going to do this? And he will. And it goes on. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now God's already angry at Edom. And yet he, 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 he pronounces judgment against this other nation, against the people of Moab, neighbors to Edom, because what have they done? Well, they have disrespected royalty. They have disrespected a, an authority in the, in the kingdom that God has established. God sets kings up and God brings them down. And yet they have, they have um, taken this king's remains. They've, they've raided a tomb and they have, they have um, pulverized his bones. They burned his bones down to the point that they're lime and they, they probably, it's implied that they use them then to build something as if he'll never exist again. And the, the idea was when you such so desecrated a body that it ceased to exist in any identifiable form, even the bones... That took away the possibility of future resurrection. Remember when Joseph tells his brothers, he said, I'm about to die, but God is going to visit you here. God is going to bring you up out of Egypt, and when he does, bring my bones with you. Because God's going to give you his land, and I want to be there too. And when the resurrection comes in the future, I want to be raised up, and I don't want to have to travel here. I want to be raised up and already be in the land that God has given us the hope of resurrection that is involved in that whole burial scheme. And so here, 
they're denying that and they're, they're, they're desecrating a king. It's not merely an act of one nation against another. It's also a rebellion against authority. And then God gets even closer to home. Against even closer to one of uh, Israel, the northern Israel's bitter enemies, their southern brothers, Judah, Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. For three transgressions of Judah in verse 4, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes for their lies have led them astray after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now there's always plots going on in Israel against Judah. They're going to invade or they're worried that Judah's going to invade them. And so they're, they're glad to hear. Israel is glad to hear that God is finally going to do something about those people in the south. But they don't like, they don't trust, they broke away long ago and they won't let them be and finally God's going to deal with them. Yeah, they violated the covenant. Yeah, that's right, God, that's right, God. They haven't kept your law. That's right, God. Let's take a look at this whole list. I have a list of these nations and their sin. I think I, there's a list. I thought I had a list. So there's Syria, violent oppression. Philistia, violent oppression. Tyre, disregards the vows. Edom, violence against the vow. Uh, Ammon, violent oppression. Moab, disregarded authority. Remember that king. Judah, idolatry. Unfaithfulness to their covenant with God in the form of following after idols and false gods instead. For three transgressions and for four. Wait a minute. God says for each of those countries, for three transgressions, even for four. And yet, how many did he list for each country? He only listed one offense. He said there were three or four. He only listed one. But if we look at the whole list together, you find there's, there's violent oppression. There's a disregarding vows. There is disregarding authority. And there is idolatry. There are four transgressions that are listed, only one for each of them. But there's four total, right? Okay. And there are seven that are named. So by this time, by this time, the Israel audience is worked up. The Israel audience is in harmony with the prophet Amos. The Israel audience is shouting, Amen, Amos. Okay? That's what's going on here. Because he has called out every one of their enemies, every one of their competitors, shall we say. He has called out their specific offenses. God has seen it, and God is going to judge it. And they're saying, all right, that's right. Amen. Get them, God. But that is not the purpose. Most commentators talk about these first two chapters of Amos as they're showing that God will judge the nations. That actually is a theological aside. It's true. It is not the point. The point is about to be sprung. See, this is, this is another one of the... We talked last week about judicial parables. Remember Nathan and David? That's the favorite one. Everybody knows the story of Nate, the prophet Nathan and King David. And he weaves the story to David after the sin of Bathsheba. He weaves the story about this poor guy with one little lamb and the rich man who had fields of flocks. He goes and takes that one man's lamb to feed his guest instead of one of his own. And David pronounces an angry judgment against them. And then Nathan puts his thumb on the king's chest and he says, you're the man. You're the man against whom you've pronounced judgment. 
And as they agree with Amos here, they are agreeing with God's judgment against themselves. Look at chapter 6. So far, we have been looking at what's going on out there. And God says, no, 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 the whole point is look what's going on here. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and four, I will not revoke the punishment. You see the same formula? Same phrase? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. There's the oppression of others. Those who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. There's idolatry. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments that are taken in pledge. There's the violation of vows. We'll come back to that. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. A mingling of idolatry with oppression. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above, his root beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your own young for Nazarites. God reminds them of his grace of his redemption, of all that he has done for them. You see, Amos is preaching to God's people. Amos is preaching to those who know that they're sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Absolutely, we're in the club. We're in good with God. God has made promises to us, and he can't go back on those promises, but he needs to judge those people out there and the things that they're doing. And God says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He reminds them of the redemption. And then, after listing three specific offenses... And then remind them of redemption, verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink vow. Or, or rather, you made the Nazarites drink wine. Sorry, there's a violation of vows again. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. You denied the prophets who were the very messengers of the true king, God himself. You have disregarded authority even greater than those of Moab. See what's happened here. God has set them up. God has now put his finger on their chest, and he said, you're the ones. You're the man. Look at the next chart. I, I, I laid out in those verses the oppression, idolatry, a violation of covenant vows, and a disregarding of God's authority. The same things that Amos called out all of the other nations for, and Israel gives a hearty amen. You see what he's done? He said, you're the ones. You're the ones. Yeah, we're worried about what's going on out there. And Amos says, take a look at what's going on in here. Now, not only that, but all of these judgments against the nations, all of those judgments God is going to do, God is going to carry out. I want to look at the, at the dates. There's, the, there's another chart that I've got that goes back to those other seven. And the judgment that God specified, the judgment that he predicted, prophesied concerning them, it happened. Amos prophesied somewhere after 755, 755 B.C. 755, 750, 745, somewhere in there. And then after Amos speaks these words, the judgments begin to fall. 
And every time one of these judgments is culminated, every time the newspaper hits the front porch and they see what has happened, just like God said it was going to happen, that he would hold those people and those nations accountable, and they're reminded of the truth of these prophecies. 740, Syria. 734, Philistia. 736, Edom. 734, Ammon. 735, Moab falls. 724, Tyre falls. Two years prior to when Israel herself will fall to the Assyrians because of God's judgment against them. The only one on the list that falls or, or, or is, at least faces God's wrath through the Assyrians after Israel falls is Judah, the one they most wanted to see get it. But what, what I want you to see here is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to declare and to warn and to even let them see the judgment coming. Why? So that they could be warned. And so that any within Israel could still hear the word of God and repent and return and trust God. Accept his mercy. Call upon him for mercy instead of facing his judgment because judgment is coming all around them, all around them. If you laid out those countries on a map, you would find that God is drawing a bullseye to Israel. That's his focus. God's people are worried about what's going on out there. And God says, I'm worried about what's going on in here. Peter says, let judgment begin with the household of God. If God is going to judge the world, he's got to start here. God has got to confront us also. You know, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, you're familiar with Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is an important, it's a terribly important chapter in our society today. It confronts the godlessness of society. And actually, I think I, think I, need, to, I need to speak. As, as, as I've been studying these things this week, I, I really need to, I'm going to pull aside from the prophets next week, and I'm actually going to, going to talk about issues of, uh, our, in our society, we don't even know as Christians, when we're, when we're bombarded in this whole area, this is just an aside, we're bombarded with this area of redefinition of marriage, and we're not sure how to, how to, how to respond. Somebody says, no, I cannot make a cake for that wedding. Somebody else says, well, you should make two cakes. If they, ask you, if they force you to go one mile, you should go two, right? So if they want you to make one cake, well, you should go the extra mile. You should make two. I want to suggest next Sunday you should make a different cake. I won't say any more than that. Next week, we'll look at these passages, and I want to give you a different answer than some of what's out today. I want to suggest make a different cake. Don't I'll not make a cake. Don't make two cakes. Make a different cake. Come back next week for cake. All right. Where were we? Oh, yeah, Romans chapter 1. So in the midst of Romans chapter 1, God calls out very specifically the, the, the sin of the society of the day. And he, and he, and he, and he sums it up in the end. The uh, unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, like those first seven, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Approval. And, and approval is being pushed on us to approve that which God cannot approve. And yet the whole point of Romans chapter 1 is to get you to Romans chapter 2. 
Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges those things. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the very same kinds of things. Isn't it interesting? Paul is writing to the church in Romans. And Paul is writing to the church about the sin of society out there because he said we might not do those exact same things, but we do the same kind of things. See, instead of in humanity, instead of selfish oppression, God sought mercy and kindness and grace and generosity. Instead of idolatry, God sought devotion and trust in Him alone. Instead of violating pledges and vows, God sought honesty and integrity. Instead of exalting themselves over others and disregarding authority, God sought humility and joyful submission. He has shown you, O man, the prophet says, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And when he calls out all the other nations, his focus is on Israel. And when, he, when we see the sin of society reflected in Scripture, our first thought should not be those people out there. Our first thought ought to be, what about us in here? Cleanse my heart, O God. Search me and know me, God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. Let judgment first begin with the household of God. If it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel? If the righteous are barely saved in terms of judgment, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, our own salvation, our own rescue ought to spur us for concern about those that are still lost. Let me talk about oppression. Going back to the framework that Amos has given us, let's talk about, first of all, oppression. Well, I don't enslave anybody. I don't, I don't traffic in people. I don't go to websites involved in turning people into objects. I'm not, I'm not even harsh to staff, the people that I supervise, the people that work for me. Some of those clowns ought to be fired, but no, I'm not talking about the church staff here. I'm, I'm, I'm voicing for you. I, oh, my goodness. Oh. It feels... To us, it would seem like Christians are the ones that oppress, Pastor. What are you saying? Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe so. But are we known for our mercy, for our generosity? Are we known for our kindness toward others? What about the murder of defenseless babies that's going on in our society for the financial profit of an organization ironically named Planned Parenthood? What if groups like Options 360 that our church supports? What if groups like Options 360 actually had a list of churches that they could call anytime a young girl came into that clinic and said, but I have to get an abortion because my parents have said, if, they, if I don't, they're going to put me out on the street. I can't come home. I don't have any choice. What if they had a list of churches that were ready because those churches had families, had couples, had people that you get a girl in that situation, we will take her in. We will shelter her. We will provide for her. We will nurture her and raise her up in how she can care for this baby, whether she's going to give that to adoption, whether she needs to be shown how to care for this child for herself. We're going to be there for her. If we value life, will we value her life and that child's life? What if they had a list like that? How would that change the ministry of Options 360? What if we were known for extravagant love rather than good stewardship. 
What if extravagant love that seemed financially foolish actually was good stewardship of what God has entrusted to us? Let's talk about idolatry. Are we disturbed by the alternative spiritualities and the corresponding intolerance and marginalization of Christians? Are we bothered by that in society today? That should be concerning to us. Would we be satisfied, however, if America were, were merely returned to a religious veneer that gave a lip service to morality and religion, holds to some form of godliness, as Paul said, and yet denies the power of it in the gospel? We are good people. We, are, we believe in God, whatever that means, but still is not an exaltation of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Would we be happy to return to a more moral America? In a world enamored by, many, enamored by many American idols, are we known as being ridiculously devoted to Jesus instead? Paul warns of covetousness, which is idolatry. Job says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can, can we really exist? Can we live in the currents of this materialistic, coveting, idolatrous society and not be somehow affected by it? not have its values in some ways press in upon us that we need to continually re-examine and see in what ways they're creeping in and popping up again? What would your neighbors or your friend at work say about that is the most important thing in your life? If they were just to be asked by someone else, what's, what's the most important thing in his, her life? What would they say? Would it be Jesus? Would it be something else? Whatever that, whatever that answer might be, that might be our idol, you see. In a world filled with coveting and idolatry, are Christians known for a ridiculous, inexplicable devotion to Jesus that is evident in the things that we do? Are those around us convinced by observation that our faith really is real? Do they think us sincere even if they think us misguided, or do they think us hypocrites? What would they say? You're an example of that. Chuck's Produce is closed on Saturdays. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business that's run by Seventh-day Adventists. I've heard my neighbors talk about that. Why are they closed on Saturday? That's just weird. They're closed on Saturday. It's a big business day for grocery shopping. People work in the week. They'd go to the grocery store on Saturday, and they're driving by Chuck's, and they're going up to Safeway. What is with that? Oh, I think it's something to do with the religion. I think the owners are Jewish or something. Well, yeah. Okay, but I've heard those same neighbors that don't understand is still, well, I, you know, I kind of admire that they're, they're sticking by what they believe. I was glad to hear that. Even though they don't understand it, they're still glad that these people are sticking by what they believe. Would they say that about us? That they're, you know, it makes sense to, to them, but they're glad that they see us sticking by what we believe. So I don't worship other gods. What about the things that we devote our time to? Some of you men are going to have be challenged by this this fall. The Seahawks schedule just came out, okay? <laughs> Opening game of the regular season is a 10 o'clock game. 10 a.m. game against St. Louis. A better St. Louis team this year than they were last year. Our division rivals, and, and it's a 10 o'clock game. Are you going to miss it because I'm going to go long in preaching? Or are you going to say, well, you know, I was in church last week, and this is the first game, this opening game. It's going to be a dilemma for some of you. I'll tell you right now, I'll be here, okay? 
We'll have to do an NFL rewind or something. I don't know, but I'll be here. What about the things we devote ourselves to? I'm not, I'm not being legalistic about this. But easily things in our society today will creep in and crowd out even our gathering together, which, which God has specifically said, as you see the day drawing near, don't forsake, don't give up the assembling of yourselves together. And it's not merely about me being here and singing songs and, and punching my communication card as if it were a time clock. No, the point is that people in this body need me. Somebody needs me to give them a word of encouragement. Before you leave here today, I hope you do that. Somebody needs me to come alongside them and ask how they're doing. And when I hear, maybe we need to stop right there and pray for one another. I hope you'll do that before you leave today. It's not merely about coming and receiving. Church gather is about ministry to one another. God, would you use me today as I gather together with your people that you might, as your word says, we gather together to provoke one another and encourage one another to love and good deeds. Would you use me to encourage somebody? Would you use me to provoke somebody today, God? And come with that expectation. That's why we gather and beware what you'll let anything else push that aside. What about vows? Okay, here we go. Let's talk about marriage. Marriage has been redefined to mean something that was never intended to mean. As a society, we have denigrated the most foundational vows. We've redefined them. But you know what? To be honest, we'd redefined marriage a long time ago. And I don't mean, merely mean in American society. The wor- when they tried to pin Jesus down on what circumstances would a divorce maybe be allowed in, he, he didn't entertain the notion. But he did say this. He said, divorce has even been allowed. And there, there are prescriptions regarding divorce in the law because of the hardness of your hearts. And he's talking about humanity in general. That we are broken. We are messed up. And so there needs to be a provision, even in Moses' law, that when there is the divorce, that, that one of the parties is shielded from oppression and being taken advantage of in the, in, the, in the midst of it, because that's what's happened in humanity. And so when we talk about marriage, are we merely against somebody else's definition, or are we resolutely and devotedly for what God has said marriage is to be? Do we live it out that way? What if Christians were known for what marriage is supposed to be? Not merely by definition, but in practice. What if men of God truly loved their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? What if she and her needs really were first on his list rather than somewhere further down? What if, what if wives honored and respected their husbands, that when the ladies are gathering and talking about men, you don't do that, do you, ladies? <laughs> you do. What if, what if Christians were known for the way that they built up and expressed appreciation and value and honor for their husbands and somehow or another that word leaked back? What would that do within our society What would that certainly do of the testimony of Christ and the weirdness of his church? It's not merely being angry about what's going on out there, but God says, take a look in here, finally disregarding authority. Is our disdain for the political leadership of the day merely because they are corrupt and incompetent, or is it partly because we don't respect anybody else as much as we respect ourselves? Is the root issue at least partly something of pride? Are we known as respectful? Are we known as giving honor to whom honor is due 
as God has told us. If Paul could tell Christians to give honor and to respect and to pray for Nero's government, can we still honor and pray for ours? Can Christians submit trusting God even as a government extends its reach? It's easy to express what we don't like about our leaders. Can we articulate what we appreciate? Can we live out the old maxim of two compliments before a criticism? Can I say something that I like and appreciate, even if it's, I think, their best of intentions, even if I disagree wholeheartedly with the way that it's being acted out or acted upon? But can I give some credit before I criticize? Can, I, can we be known rather for well-thought-out solutions rather than sharp criticism? You see, God says, let judgment begin first in the household of God. God says, my house first. There's evil around us. But let the evil around us not discourage us. Let the evils around us remind us of evil even within us and our desperate need for a Savior. Let the evil around us remind us of the need for the cross, that in humility and grace we can show others the way there. You know what? You can never, in self-righteous pride, lead someone to Jesus' cross. It can't be done. You can never in self-righteous pride lead someone else to Jesus as Christ because the cross is God's surest testimony of our, of all of humanity's desperate need for God's Savior. Peter says, let's let judgment begin with the household of God. When I open this book, let's let it first speak to ourselves before we think of what it says to anybody else. The next song we're going to sing is Lord Have Mercy. That's a, good, that's a good song to pray, isn't it? I'm going to invite, as the worship team come forward, I'm going to invite us to begin praying, and then as we sing, we'll continue praying. Father, we want you to speak to us. Lord, we don't want to be afraid of your word. We don't want to be afraid of what you might say. Father, we, we long to hear from you as our loving Father, trusting what you say, but knowing, Lord, that in our own brokenness and tendency towards sin, Lord, we need to hear from you. And so, Father, even in these four areas, the keeping of vows, the using and misusing others, the disregarding authority, Lord, would you, would you speak to our own hearts before we try to speak to anybody else. Lord, would you lead us to your mercy that we might love your mercy. Oh Lord, have mercy on us that your mercy might overflow from us, Lord, to the people around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.